You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Phil Mackey. Uh, he's been around. He's one of those guys where he's got a lot of talent, but he's kind of a knucklehead. Judd Zolgad. For someone who has done some amazing journalism, he's just a boob. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. The kickoffs, down with the kickoffs, get rid of kickoffs now. Punts. It's a short get leash for kickoffs, a very short <laughs> leash. <laughs> well, here's the story from ESPN.com. They're overhauling America's favorite sport. And the thing that begins America's favorite sport, the kickoff. The proposed changes will be written into a formal document by next week sometime and presented to owners for approval during their May 21st through 23rd meetings in Atlanta. The changes to the kickoff include, number one, coverage teams would lose the five-yard head start they previously had. Uh, Five players would need to be aligned on each side of the kicker. All wedge blocks, including two-man double teams, would be eliminated. Mm-hmm. Eight of the 11 return team members would be lined up within 15 yards of the restraining line, and blocking would be prohibited within those 15 yards. And there would be no pre-kick motion. So you just kick it and then go. Uh, so no head start, yeah. Right. On-site kick rules would remain largely unchanged. The governing idea was to reduce the space and speed of collisions that have historically occurred on kickoffs. Quote from Kansas City Chiefs Special Teams Coordinator Dave Taub. With the old rule, you had guys running at each other. Now you'll have guys running with each other down the field. That makes a big difference because the distance between the two of them are closer. So they're definitely yeah. like grinding kickoffs that, down. Now, but they got. I have a question. Okay, why don't we just get rid of it altogether and put the ball at the twenty or twenty-five and start games that way? So I agree with the first part of that sentence. Disagree with the second part. I think you should find a way to allow teams to get field position somehow. Like, okay, if you have a great special teams unit, but your offense is let's say you win games based off special teams and defense and your offense because you have a backup crappy quarterback or Blake Bortles or whatever, like you're the Jaguars. Okay. And part of your advantage is field position or a good return man that can once in a while, even though it's not very often anymore, bring the ball back to the 40 or the 50 or something and then set you up for a, a late drive. I think you could accomplish that by just changing the kickoff to a punt, period. Just... Yeah, which is what just they're trying. Which is what they're trying to punts. do without it actually being physically punted. Just, just punt the ball. What's the average punt in the air? Well, on something like this, your goal would be to kick it as almost as far as you can, or force a, you know, force someone to catch it at the twenty or twenty-five yard line sure. due to hang time. Sure. So you just have to figure out where you'd, you where you'd make the line of scrimmage so that your punter could get the ball down the field to like the opposing team's just, five or ten yard line. I just find it silly that they continue to tweak this exercise year after year after year when when clearly what they're trying to do the the league is trying to say we are generally concerned about concussions and we can prove that that a lot of concussions happen on this particular play. Yeah, and so they keep trying to tweak it, and I just want to say okay. Why don't you just do something entirely different or start the game at a certain place? Because they're going now. I, I think the Packers 
president came out and said the kickoff remains on a very short leash still. I mean, it's clear what's it's clear they're going down the path here of eliminating this play entirely. Yeah. And I just find it comical that we continue to be like, well, if we just do this, they they eliminated. Do you recall, uh, this is probably about five to eight years back, I want to say when they started to tweak the kickoff rules, they eliminated the wedge blocks because you used to have like four-man wedges where people would just get, they'd run full speed and just get absolutely destroyed. It was like a war zone. And then you were down, so now you've been down to two-man, I think, what they just said is going to be out now. But they just, they continue to to go down this path, which is the league basically trying to tell the the courts if nothing else we're very concerned about concussions and i i understand i mean dave brought up a good point before the show that a lot of brain damage and cte just comes from the little like offensive and defensive linemen little little bumps of the helmet bumps of the helmet here and there so i mean like that's never going to go away unless you get rid of helmets or find a way to decrease the impact of helmet to helmet even the little non-concussion helmet to helmet and good luck with things. that uh, but so i understand if you if you Make it so that you're not having, you know, one set of players who are 250 pounds and freak athletes running head on into another set and and colliding into wedges and things. I get that that reduces concussion impact, but like this is well, I would I would do a I would just do a flat out punt. I would just do a punt, and then the question that people ask is, okay, well, what about the onside kick? Then you have to be able to you want to be able to if you get rid of the kickoff, this is the problem. Do you then like, declare onside kick? Because part of the onside kick is that it's a bit of a surprise. Some you know where it. it's going to go. Would you have to then declare, hey, we're going to do an onside kick this time? And that's why I would revamp it. Kickoffs are now punts. Yep. And kickoffs are really just fourth and call it 18. Okay. So So get rid of the traditional kickoff. And every time there's going to be a kickoff, it's now fourth and 18. And you can choose to punt the ball to the opposing team. Or if you want the ball back, you can choose to go for it. Or whatever, whether it's 15 or 20, whatever. I I said 4th and 18 because it's a long shot, just like an onside kick is. But it would give you a chance to get the ball back whenever you want if you thought you could get the 18 yards. Now, part, okay. So part of, of the onside kick is the element of surprise. I get that. But when a team onside kicks, you're really not shocked by it because they're down by, you know, a touchdown well, or something. The, at the end of a game, yes. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is, is I think what we're trying to eliminate here, if I'm correct, is the high-speed collisions that, that occur from guys ha- having a, a head start. Could you actually, let's say they went with your plan and they did punts, except now I just scored a touchdown and I pulled I pulled within three points. If I declare, okay, I'm going to try an onside kick now because you have a lot of collisions, but they're not necessarily high speed. And so we go to the traditional kickoff mode then, but it's going to be an onside kick. So the element of surprise is gone, but my potential to get the ball still exists. I, I, I don't like I, it, I don't, but I'm just throwing out the there. onside kick is one of the lamest plays in football. It's just like a, it just, it's like someone tried to work the system 50 years ago to try and get the ball back. If you went with my plan, You'd get rid of the high-speed collisions that take place when someone runs 20 yards on a full sprint and then runs into a blocker on the kick return team. And it actually makes the onside kick play much more exciting because it's not a kick anymore. It's your star quarterback dropping back and trying to throw a 20-yard pass to keep a possession alive. Or if you're really feeling it offensively and you want to put a dagger in someone, instead of a surprise onside kick to get the ball back after halftime, you just line up and say, you know what? 
We're up by two touchdowns, and we think we're gonna your defense is terrible, and we're gonna throw a twenty yard pass, and we're gonna get the ball back. It makes it more fun. Argue against it. It makes it more fun. It's, it's been two years since we brought this up on the show, but I've had this conversation with Chris Long too, and Chris is a hundred percent on board. We're innovative sports minds. I don't mind it. No, I, I, I just back to Dave's point before the show. I do find it amusing that this high speed collision sport is trying to, and and I get it. They they have to, but they are they are trying to make their sport safer, and yet the sport is is all about contact at high speeds. Yeah, you're never going to make so it. So you're not going to do Yeah, like You're better off getting rid of helmets altogether. Yes. If you're just trying to prevent CTE and brain damage, you're probably better off just having it be like rugby where guys, hey, I mean, you can go head first into somebody, but you're going to die. Yeah, <laughs> so, you're going to be hurt badly that way. Yeah. And someone's nose is going to get broken. But it's just that, you know, we they, they keep trying to tweak the rules, and I get it, but it's really difficult. And, and as Lou, Lou said about hockey too and this is the same problem you're trying to make a sport safe and you're trying to anticipate contact where it's damn near impossible because if i catch a football and you're you're about to hit me and i get skittish and i duck and i duck into your hit guess what i get hurt hockey same way mm-hmm. so so what they're trying to do is they're trying to sit down in football in mid-March, April, they're trying to say, okay, let's look at these plays and anticipate. Well, it's darn near impossible because what you can't anticipate is if I duck down into your hit and now I, I suffer a concussion, is that your fault? So there's just some things that, that are impossible to avoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, too, if you got rid of kickoffs and you went with either punts or this is, this is where – Personnel might be different too. I'm trying to think like you don't see offensive linemen or defensive linemen as much. I, what's a typical what's a typical kick return team compared it's to different. a typical punt return team? It's it di- is different. It's different. Right? And it's different, including often the guys that return the ball because catching a punt is different than a kick. Yeah, because like catching your head the ball start in is traffic, completely different for sure. So yeah, if you went if you went to a punt as the kickoff, the guy who catches the ball would be different. And your personnel would definitely be different. So you don't, man. The problem is if you went with a punt, hang time is going to be a huge factor. Like you're just, you're almost, you're not going to get return. If they don't want you to return it, they'll just hang the ball up at the 25 or 30 yard line. But let's say the average, like let's say a punter could get it 50 yards in the air from the line of scrimmage on average. Would you punt it from the 30 (laughs) and then... Like would you would it be or would it would it remain the thirty five because it's the thirty five yard line now for a kickoff would it remain the thirty five yard line and then that ball on average would get to the fifteen and then that guy could decide do I want to return do I want to return it or not or just fair catch it so there, you'd have to play that math game a little bit and figure it out now kickoffs the hang time like they're kicking it deeper without as much I think the kickoff is time. dead but they, just a question like, of when I'd love either way I'd love to get rid of the onside kick the onside kick is so anticlimactic. I like in the NBA that you can call a timeout with 0.6 seconds left under your own basket and advance the ball and get a like LeBron James and get a shot off. I don't so mind that idea. If I can put the ball in yeah. in you know Tom Brady's hand to get the ball back instead of my idiot kicker, that's a lot of fun. That's Disagreeing. Why? Nothing better than when a kicker lines up, gets everybody <laughs> set. You guys over yeah, there. Yes. You guys over there. They bring you two have kickers no out. No idea which side I'm going to kick it to. Got a punter and a kicker. 
and then I muff it and only kick it seven yards and I can't get it <laughs> anyway. Or or yep. those times when he does get a hold of it and just blasts it right out of bounds and oh, no one's get yeah. the shot at Oh, yeah. yeah college is, kickers are the best because oh. they can never get it right. When if they get, get rid of kickoffs and I can't be there for the boom, I'm going to be a little bitter. <laughs> boom! When is the last time that you guys saw an onside kick that honestly took you completely by surprise? Because mine might be the Saints-Colts Super Bowl in 2009. That season. Oh, there's been many more since then. That caught you completely by surprise? Yeah, teams will do it coming out of a half or to start the I game. I that will happen. I mean, think about the options. If if you went with my 4th and 18 theory, and you could run out there, you could put Aaron Rodgers on the field. Maybe he maybe he kicks it. You hey, don't know. You could put him on the field for an onside kick. No one says you can't. He could. Yes, he could. <laughs> That's a great idea. He picks it up and throws it. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony he's gives he's got Devontae Adams down the left side. That's coming back. Breaks his collarbone again. As far as the rule change, I don't mind any of these. It does, does it offend you that runners can't now get a five-yard advantage oh. or that eight people have to be within 15 yards of the line or no. whatever? It's fine. It's going to look mostly the same on TV. They're getting rid of some head trauma, but you not, know, but not enough probably. You know There's still going to be a defensive tackle that winds up in a bad bad. Place. And every time a linebacker blitzes through the line uh, line of scrimmage and he has to you know hit a running back at full speed, guess what? Same thing happens every play. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Yep. Don't play football if you don't want your brains to be scrambled eggs. Roy Smalley's going to join us in about 15 minutes or so. Matthew Collar and uh, we can get back into the Jamal Crawford news. Jamal Crawford will not exercise his player option. With the Wolves, what does that mean? We dove into it a little bit in the 9 o'clock hour. We can get back into it, too. Mackie and Judd. Mackie and Judd are back. Audio level full volume. It's showtime. On 1500 ESPN. Eight to go on the shot clock. Here's Crawford driving on Jordan, the runner of the stack house. Nice. Saw a little opening in there. Took Shot the gap. Got a nice little floater up over the defense. Good job by Jamal. Crawford buries the three. I am so happy he's on our team right now. Cold. <laughs> Sergeant Pete. Well, he's not going to be on the team anymore unless they unless he circles around the free agent you know, options and, and Jimmy Butler comes gets back his way. on a minimum contract of some kind. But Jamal Crawford, according to multiple reports, but I saw it from Johnny K. Johnny uh, K from the Athletic, four point five million dollar player option for next season. He will decline it and become a free agent. Do you think? This was Jamal Crawford looking at the current Wolves landscape and saying, eh, not really feeling this whole thing, not really feeling this whole Tom Thibodeau-Wiggins thing. Or do you think it was Tom Thibodeau and Scott Layden saying, hey, you know, I mean, obviously it's up to you. It's a player option, but we're looking to bring in a couple other players who are a little bit more defensive-minded and maybe can hit some threes on a more regular basis. I think this was Jamal Crawford uh, going back to when he came out in December or so and uh, and either complained and or questioned his playing time, saying that he thought his role when he signed the potential two-year contract here was going to be more substantial. I think he thought that his role was going to be different th- than it ended up being, uh, which is the chance you take when you play for Tibbs, because if you haven't played for Tibbs before, it's probably a surprise um, to some degree. So I would guess... That, that although I think this works out for the Wolves ultimately because they can go get a different type of shooter and and certainly a, a more competent defender, I would say that this was uh, Jamal Crawford's decision and or plan since he decided that his role didn't fit into what he believed it was going to be when he signed here before last season. That's yeah, my guess. I think it's him too. 
And he's he's definitely grown accustomed to bouncing around to different teams and you know, I thought I don't think he has any problem just going and playing for like I I could see him playing for Oklahoma City or something next year, just coming off the bench if Paul George goes elsewhere and I don't know, they're trying to find anyone who will play with Russell Westbrook and maybe some cheap veteran options. I could see him playing in Oklahoma City. Like the good the good that he offered with the Wolves was number one, he was a great leader behind the scenes. He was a guy that would he would definitely, you know, take young guys under his wing. Maybe sometimes to a fault, if Andrew Wiggins wasn't being told by someone where he should shoot from, he's looking at Jamal saying, "Oh, like Jamal I can, shoots from anywhere. I, can I can shoot from the I'll shoot from anywhere too." But floor. but he single handedly Jamal Crawford carried and won several games for the Wolves this year. Home opener, the home opener. There was a game. I think was it against Portland late in the year where he got. I think there was a Portland yeah, game in there that hot. he blacked out he and got just went incredibly hot. Yeah, that might have been the one earlier in the year. And uh, and if you remember two years ago, one of the Wolves' biggest problems that we complained about was who scored points off the bench? Nobody. So to go from nobody scoring points off the bench to, okay, now someone's scoring points off the bench, but it's inefficient and he doesn't really play great defense, you know, you'll, you'll take that step. Uh, the bad news, we brought this up earlier in the show, thanks to Punch Drunk Wolves on Twitter for uncovering this. And this is this is the number one thing that we should look at with the Jamal Crawford news. The Wolves with Jamal Crawford off the court this year were the 12th best defensive team in the NBA. So they were, you know, they weren't Chicago Bulls in Tom Thibodeau's heyday good defensively, but when he wasn't on the court, Mm -hmm. they were one of the better defensive teams in the NBA. When he was on the court, they were by far the worst team in the NBA defensively. So can you just replace, they need threes, they need defense. Can they replace Jamal Crawford with somebody who can spot up and shoot threes? and not need the ball as often, and somebody who can just be even a break-even league average defensive player. I mean, that's a, we're not really asking for a whole lot to fill who that Who do role. you let go now? So if Crawford's the, the first uh, to almost certainly not come back, who else do you, if, if you were Tibbs, who would you let go? Well, Derrick Rose, absolutely. I and, I, and, I, and I think it's okay to say Derrick Rose was a lot better in the playoffs than anyone thought he was going to be. I'm not going to get tricked into a two-year contract that... I mean, this is we were talking about this off the air, but they need more efficient scoring and defense. And so, and it's it's crazy that they gave the ball to Wiggins, Crawford, and Derrick Rose at the end of the year. Derrick Rose more often than almost anyone in terms of like three point attempts and these things. And they still were one of the best offensive teams in the NBA despite shooting themselves in the foot. Effective field goal percentage combines the twos, the threes, and I believe even the free throws that you take, but it just it's a, it's like an efficiency. It's almost like slugging percentage. Well, so-and-so hits 300, and this guy hits 300. Right, but like one guy has 35 more extra base hits than the other one, and so therefore he's a more valuable offensive contributor. And that's what effective field goal percentage is in basketball. Two guys can have the same field goal percentage, but one guy hits a bunch more threes. Well, that guy's a more valuable offensive contributor. Sure. And the three worst on the team were Derrick Rose, Andrew Wiggins, and Jamal Crawford. So yeah, I would just getting rid of either. just getting rid of two of those guys and giving shots to more efficient scorers mm-hmm. is going to be a boost for the Wolves. I would give Tyus Jones. I mean, Tyus Jones off the bench to back up Jeff Teague. Those are your point guards. Those are your point guards. You don't need Derrick Rose on the team. Tyus Jones is a better player if given the minutes than Derrick Rose is. Mm-hmm. And if you can't coach up Tyus Jones, then that's well, that goes that's back on, to being a coaching problem. Yeah, that's on you. Yeah, I would get rid of those two guys. I would. Uh, I don't know. Belly. That's going to be a tough one because it's possible you might like Belly might have to be a cap casualty. I I'd, I'd try to trade Gorgie Jang. 
Because, again, this goes back to coaching, but if you're just looking for a you big man what, off though? the bench, Justin Patton should be a guy that you can rely on for 15 or 20 minutes off the bench. You know what's sad about this entire conversation, though, is the fact that Belly and Gorgie are both they are both players who have regressed, I think, and they are both players who this comes down to coaching. And I guarantee you that if Belly goes somewhere else a year from now, we're going to sit here and have an entire conversation about why couldn't the Wolves maximize that. Yeah, dude, Belly's and one of the Gor- easiest Gorgie, guys. In- Gorgie's definitely gone backwards. When Gorgie's that, – that contract now looks bad because the parameters of the cap have changed. I get that. But when Gorgie signed that contract, you said to yourself, this is a pretty good player. Mm-hmm. And this year came off the bench, confidence went down. Gorgie was a different player, not in a good way. And that, again, goes back to the question of why. And some of that is on him, but not all of it. I mean, Bielitsa is one of the more... I would think that Bielitsa's skill sets in today's NBA would be so easy to use for most coaches. You got a guy, not only a great three-point shooter, but a guy who can actually dribble the ball and pass. I mean, he's he's got... He's there, there's a little bit of like point guard skill set there with him too, even though he's a he's a more of a big man and there's a wing spe- player and there's a specific talent there that they desperately need and are not using. Yeah, there's so many teams that would get 25 minutes a night, maybe 30 minutes a night, and a guy who would score 12 to 15 points, efficient three point shooter. It's like put him he just on Houston, put him on on Houston tomorrow, and D'Antoni or, would say or Utah. Yeah, and D'Antoni would say, Belly, I want you to do one thing. You're gonna go in games. And you're going to shoot three pointers, and you're going to be because the way if you watch Houston, their offense in the half court is literally just spread everything as wide as possible. It's like a it's like a Big Twelve football game. We're going to put two guys in the corners at all times to make sure everything is spread out, and then we have two guys in with their starting unit. They've got two guys who can break almost anyone down off the dribble that they want to, and then and then Clint Capella who's just rolling to the hoop. So they're creating all this space. Bielitsa. Can beat guys off the dribble. Depends on who. Like he's not. He might not. He's not going to beat get, Jimmy Butler off the dribble. Sure, or, but, but yeah, yes. But like he he can beat players off the dribble. Create so he can get to the hoop. He can shoot. I don't understand how you can't get more out of Bielitsa. Is the point here? Because the problem is he catches the ball and then he looks at Tibbs and he thinks, Oh my God, if I miss, I'm out. Where, where D'Antoni would say, Belly, I don't care if you miss. Pull the trigger, dude. You're going to make again. four out of ten. Go down again the next time. If you get the ball, shoot again. Yep. So I don't know. It depends on the cap, but I would try and find a way to keep and empower Bielitsa if I could. And I would get rid of volume scorers who can't play defense, which is Derrick Rose and Jamal Crawford and Andrew Wiggins, but he just signed a max contract. So it'll be interesting. This will be last year was a really fun Wolves offseason because they landed Jimmy Butler, but the tweaks that are there to be made and the trades that might be rumored or pulled off are going to be really interesting to watch here in about a month, month and a half. Well, month and a half, yeah. Let's talk to Roy Smalley when we come back. We'll talk some Twins. He's on the road trip in Chicago. It's a 10-game road trip. The Twins start today. We'll talk some Fernando Romero with him from the TCL Broadcast Studio. The Mackie and Judd Show rolls on. Here we go. On 1500 ESPN. Mackie and Judd are talking Twins. Now. Now. With former Twins great turned FSN analyst Roy Smalley. Yes. Let's talk Fernando. You know, Roy, I've got some... Really insightful baseball takes here for you. If you're able to throw a ball 98 miles an hour and have it roll off a table at the same time, you're probably going to get hitters out. That's my observation. <laughs> well, you know, 95 to 98 with the movement that he has, um, 
running away from left-handers and and boring in on right-handers. It's it's that's that's electric stuff. And uh, we also saw a great break on a slider and a really and really nice arm action on a changeup. He didn't have a command of those uh, off-speed pitches, the, the slider and the change, so much. But the fastball's so good, and he threw enough of the other stuff close enough that he was uh, he was really good. For a young guy, Roy, I like his uh, his uh, poise and moxie too. He didn't seem intimidated by by the entire stage. I thought that the key uh, to uh, seeing exactly how right you are about that, uh, Judd, is um, the first first hitter fastball strike one, fastball strike two. I mean, it's, and you know, one, two, three, first inning, make, you know, making great pitches. It, it gave you a little indication of. You know that the stage wasn't too big for him, and he had himself under under control. But even maybe more telling was when he did start losing command a little bit and and walked a guy or went two and zero. He was able to compose himself and find you know right the ship and and figure out how to throw the ball back in the strike zone. And so uh, the the great news about the fastball is, you know, guys get behind two and zero or three and one, and you throw ninety two. Or 93, and it's in the middle, and it's straight. It gets whacked. You, you know, you go two and zero, three and one, and have 97 with movement. You can throw it in the middle and and get away with a lot. And we we saw we saw him on the corners, and we saw him in the middle, and it almost didn't matter. The only one, the only pitches they hit were uh, breaking balls that hung in the middle of the plate. Yeah, Roy, what's what's the hope here? They're the, the Twins have buried themselves quite a bit here early in the year, but. I did see this schedule breakdown yesterday that 41% of their remaining games come against the White Sox, Royals, and Tigers, the three struggling, the, the other three struggling teams in the division. Um, I mean, the fact that their schedule is going to be easier than other teams in the American League helps, but have they buried themselves too much, do you think? No, they haven't. I mean, everybody, we, let's remember where this group of young uh, guys uh, was uh, last year on July 31st, right? I mean, they, they, the front office appeared to be in cell mode, and everybody had given up on them, and they and they they ran off the, the two-month stretch in the streak as they did in August and and September. And, and now, you know, arguably the pitching staff is an awful lot better, and the young players are are a year older and, and are battle tested. Then let's also think about the fact that they. Open the season playing fairly well. They they came home. They played two games in seven days. Didn't get on the field. Went to Puerto Rico. Went to New York. Had to play. You know they have had to play some some very good teams, and uh, they weren't playing very well and and not pitching. Yeah, you know, and I I really believe that you know over the course of the season that the talent will out and um, the the starting pitching is going to be an awful lot better than it's been you know so far. And the guys are going to start hitting, and hopefully Sano and Bucks will stay on the field for an extended period. So I, I mean, I think it's it's a long way from from over. I think there's a lot of good baseball ahead of us. What do you think it's going to take to get through to Miguel? The importance of taking the Sauls seriously, Roy, because I'm getting very concerned here that that we're we're at a tipping point that goes well beyond him being on the DL, and that I mean, this guy has a world of talent. And, and he could be a fantastic player, but I also see a guy who's not consistently, certainly in shape, and and I see a guy who's pitch 
pitch selection, I thought, when he came up was fantastic and has progressively gotten worse. What do you think it's going to take to get through to him that, that if he takes this as seriously as possible, he could be a great talent? If he doesn't, this could be a quick career, which would be really sad. Uh, yeah, I, it would be sad. Um, I think that he is ultimately of the mindset that he, he wants to be a great player. So, um, unfortunately, um, it, it, things have come so easily for him to, to now uh, that I, I think he he, he is kind of he has a fallback capability, a fallback mindset of everything will be will be fine most likely because it always it always has, and it may take it may take some real failure. Uh, it may take these kinds of these kinds of things uh, to um, you know to to get through to him. I think there's a there he, you know he does work hard. Uh, at his craft, he, he, he hits a lot. He, he takes ground balls, extra ground balls, a lot. They work, you know. It's it's not so much work ethic on the field a, at all. And my, and my biggest my biggest concern is um, his the, the lack of pitch recognition uh, so far. You know, just doing the swinging and missing the same pitches over and over and over again. And I, uh, ultimately. Uh, I think that he'll figure out what he has to do because I think he really does want to be a, a, a he, he does want to be the kind of player that would uh, that would uh, that would justify that talent that he has. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's no longer when a guy is about to be 25 years old. I think he turns 25 this month. You know, it's just if he were the, if he were to be this player going forward, where he's going to have some health issues, he's still going to hit. He's going to run into 30 pitches and hit 30 home runs in a in a relatively full season. But you're going to get borderline record strikeouts. Probably can't stick at third base if you're that size. It's the difference between a guy that you might pay twenty million dollars a year on a multi-year contract to, and a guy who bounces around is kind of a positionless DH. I mean, that's the ego appeal, right? If you want to make a hundred plus million dollars on your next contract, you know you got to be at third base during that contract. You got to be able to do other things, you know, besides strike out and hit home runs. I would have, I would almost appeal to his ego in some ways. Yeah, and there, I think there's only so much of appeal and, and conversation, you know, discussion, talk uh, that you can have. Ultimately, it's it's how you're doing on the field. The the worst case scenario is that he turns out not to be a good player. The second worst case scenario is that he is a uh, he is a uh, a Aaron Hicks uh, uh, an Uber Aaron uh, uh, Aaron Hicks who. Uh, can't seem to figure it out with the Twins. Goes to the Yankees and 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 decides he better get moving here. And and so that you know one of the things that I would be afraid of is that, that just can't figure it out here for the Twins. Goes somewhere else and it shakes him up and he becomes a player that we think he's going to be. Yeah. So Ugh. I'm I, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that he turns around here quickly. They, you know obviously the lineup when he's swinging it well, the lineup with him hitting third or fourth is drastically different. Tuesday night, I'm watching the game with you and Bramer, and you tease a story that I never heard the payoff to. Goose Gossage, the bullpen car in Milwaukee. Tell me the story. Well, so Goose is coming in to pitch to the Brewers in, in Milwaukee. He gets in the uh, the bullpen car, and he, he rides around from the uh, the outfield. And the car... You know, obviously, when it's a Brewer pitcher, stops in front of the Brewer dugout on the first base side, and the pitcher gets out. But when it's a visiting player, he drives around in front of the visiting dugout on the third base side, lets him out there. So evidently, Goose, as they're driving up to the uh, pat, get past the Milwaukee dugout, 
he turns to the driver and says, stop here. And the guy, you know, I mean, it, it like when Goose says, talked in, you know, that kind of tone of voice, you, you did what Goose <laughs> said. And so, and so the guy slams on the brakes and, and he gets out and he says, okay, now you go ahead. The, the car drives ahead. Goose turns around to the uh, Milwaukee dugout and does a Hulk Hogan kind of you know, roar at the dugout like it, like he's uh, it, it just uh, fists out and just growls at him. Walks out to the mound, throws about his first three pitches to the screen. You know, about 100 miles an hour, at head high to you know misses the catcher by five feet. Says, "Come on, let's go. I'm ready." <laughs> Hitters go up there. And it was the quickest one, two, three inning you ever seen. I mean, it was like, oh my God, was this guy absolutely insane? And uh, and the hitters had, hitters wanted no part of those three at best. Hey, did, did you ever have any like? What were your dealings with George Steinbrenner in your time in New York? Um, you know, I, it, George uh, was on a particularly um, intense warpath. You know, during the years that I was there, it was uh, we. I played. I was there for a little over two and a half years. I played for five managers. Um, and, Amazing. I mean, three the first year, Billy the second year, and Yogi the, the third year. That's when I, I had requested I requested a trade to, to uh, get out. And uh, there there are Steinbrenner stories, too, but that was that one of, one of the best ones uh, was a Goose Gossage one that we'll also, you know, save for another time. But uh, he was – it was particularly – uh, disjointed uh, the, the two and two thirds years that, that that I was there. Yeah, bring back the bullpen car, Roy. That that's the key, right? Get get the bullpen car back. Well, or just bring back Goose Gossage because oh. I'll tell you that there's there's a story waiting to happen with Goose every day. Yeah, Goose is never shy about sharing his opinions on the uh, current state of baseball affairs, has he? No, no, <laughs> it never has been, never will be. Yeah, who scared who scared you most? Pitching wise, when when you went went up to face a guy, I thought this guy's a definite uh, loose cannon potentially. Who scared you the most? Um, I don't I don't think I was ever uh, you know afraid of the you know I never saw I never saw Goose do something like that. I mean I don't I, I'm not denigrating Milwaukee hitters. I don't, I, I don't know that I would have been uh, crowding the plate on uh, Goose if I'd seen him do that either. But um, I I don't remember anybody. Um, you know, being um, being create, you know, where I thought they were really crazy. I, I'll tell you, the toughest guy ever was was Nolan, uh, Nolan Ryan. When I saw him, you know, when he was in the American League when I was there, he had not developed that pinpoint control that he got later on when he went to Houston and Texas and was throwing no hitters and throwing, you know, throwing ninety eight on the on the corners all the time. He didn't really know. I don't think any of us really believe that Nolan knew exactly where that fastball was going. Uh, we, and, and I will tell you that um, you know, whatever 99, you know, whatever 98, 99, 100 miles an hour is now on the guns, it was faster than that when he when he was pitching. I, there, and I know the guns are different, but he was clocked at 105, 106 and at, at times. And I will tell you that um, the um, – the swings that guys have now at night against 98, 99 are not the same swings that they were having when, when Nolan was, uh, was really, really on. I mean, it, the ball just got on you so quickly, but going up there in the late seventies when he was with the angels and not really knowing where it was, uh, where it was going, um, it, it, you really had to steal, steal your mind against, 
those kinds of thoughts because they, you know, they hit a fastball that's going that that fast. You have to you have to you know assume it's going to be a strike and get and get everything going early and and you have no time. You can't umpire and hit at the same time. You can't you yeah. can't wait and see if the ball's coming at your at your chin. You know before you start getting ready. And it, it was a, it was a war going up against Nolan. Yeah, Nolan Ryan. Uh, by the way, the the major league leader in strikeouts, as everyone knows, also the major league leader in career walks issued. You just you were sort of a bystander. It seemed like maybe at the plate with Nolan Ryan. <laughs> I said on the air. I think I, I, I'm pretty sure I said on the air the other night uh, that uh, in talking about. Um, Twins pitchers, you know, or anybody issuing a lot of walks. There's only one guy I've ever seen in the big leagues that could walk, you know, five to eight guys or, or nine guys per nine innings and have his stuff uh, get bailing out of that. And that was Nolan Ryan. Nobody else can, you know, can walk that many that many people. And but he could, you know, he he'd he'd strike he'd walk seven guys and and uh, strike out twelve and and there you go. Yeah, great stuff, Roy. We'll Thanks, talk Roy. next week, man. See ya. All right, Roy Smalley in Chicago for Fox Sports North. Nolan Ryan, just pulling up his uh, baseball reference page here. Yep. Nolan Ryan, this was an, he was striking out, you know, almost 400 batters in a season in an era where strikeouts were not. Games were quick. Pitchers were getting, you know, pitching to contact and hitters were swinging early. And here's Nolan Ryan throwing a hundo for 25 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. Walking everyone, striking everybody out. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I remember as a kid watching Nolan Ryan in his in his forties with the Rangers. But I don't, I obviously don't. I, I remember seeing him with the Angels, and then he signed with Houston. Uh, let's see here. I, I just found a story that said uh, there there was a game in which Nolan Ryan <laughs> threw two hundred thirty five pitches. That's insane. Over 13 innings for the the Angels against the Red Sox in God. 1974. He threw 235. I think the no-hitter he threw against the Twins, I want to say the pitch count, because they didn't keep it exactly at the time. But no, I want to say clearly. The, but or I, put value into it. But I want to say the estimated pitch count <laughs> in the no-hitter he threw against the Twins, which was his third, third one of his career, was something between 175 and 200. <laughs> so he threw, he threw 200 pitches a few times. I love how he came into Texas as an executive too. He's like, you know what? We're gonna ramp all these guys up, baby. Four hundred pitches. Can you see trying to sit him down and say, okay, th- there's a new deal. We've got some evidence here. Some science there's shows a us. new deal. It's called pitch to contact. What? Or hey, so uh, we're trying to scale back on pitch counts because you know we've got some medical evidence that shows bleep you, you're fine. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. It's the weirdest thing I've ever had the misfortune to see. <laughs> Mackey and Judd. Yeah, I, I'd say it's top five. On 1500 ESPN. Save the date. The fourth annual Town Ball Classic returns to Target Field Saturday, May 26th. It's presented by 1500 ESPN and the Minnesota Twins. The day kicks off at 10 a.m. with the Class C game. Followed by Class B and Class A to wrap the day. All the games broadcast right here on 1500 ESPN. And if you want to head down to the ballpark, tickets are just $10 and good for the entire day. Proceeds from the event benefit the Twins Community Fund. For more info or to purchase your Town Ball Classic tickets, head to 1500ESPN.com. Keyword, Town Ball. And a breaking ball down and in. Got Granderson for the first out. That's a big strikeout against a veteran hitter. Half swing, I think he Same went. Pitch is the first inning, yes sir. Strike three, and they're going to get a catch of 
Strike him out, throw him out, double play. Got him. Ground ball to third, to second, to first, double play. Yeah, we talked about it before the game. You want to see how he how he handles you know the warm up and the first inning and all those kind of things. And it was it was good. I, I think that really helped him not having to uh, you know deal with putting us in the hole early. And we got him a couple of runs and. You know, he, he had some base runners. He did, you know, wasn't a perfect day for him. We know that sometimes command's going to be a little bit iffy, but as you can see, the stuff is alive and had a lot of people uncomfortable in the batter's box. Admit it. You guys, I so, you guys like ABBA a little I, bit too, right? I was just going to say, just a I, little bit. I so don't want to like that band and their songs. Don't resist it. And I can't, no, no, I'm not. I can't help myself. Don't resist it. They are catchy as all hell. I am not an ABBA fan, but you cannot help but pat your, you know, tap your toe or whatever when something's going. I'm not a There's a reason Mamma Mia is huge on Broadway (laughs) and they've now made, what, two movies? I'm not a fan, but if the songs come on, I don't turn them. You can't sit here and hedge your love for ABBA. You're trying to hedge it. Oh, I, I don't want to admit that I like no, them. I'm I not a fan, no, but I'm not gonna. No. If you if if you enjoy the catalog. song, if you enjoy the song when it comes on the radio, and yeah. you don't change the station, you are to some degree a fan of ABBA, and that's fine. No, that's I'm just, fair to say. I'm just saying I don't own anything from their catalog. But if they come on, I'm not turning it, and it's in your head for a good four hours. What are some other bands or groups that you guys would be ashamed a little bit to admit, you know what, when this band or this singer comes on, I'm not so quick to change the station. Later Bee Gees. Disco Bee Gees. I'm now, in on Disco now, Bee Gees. Now, when the Bee Gees started as sort of a Beatles band, they were fantastic. Disco BJ, B Bee <laughs> Come again? <laughs> no, thank you. Disco Bee Gees. <laughs> My mind's just in the gutter. I have to admit it. <laughs> Oh, I'm I can't. sure Studio 54 had a few of those. Yeah, back in the day. Oh yeah. Oh, you can read all about those. Uh, I can't turn it. I can't turn it off. Neil Diamond for me, and I will admit to being a Neil Diamond fan. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with that too. They, they, the only song that, the one that's been hijacked now at bars no, and Sweet Red Sox, Caroline. Sweet Caroline sure. Yeah, like that's jumped the shark. No, I can go far right. deeper than Sweet Caroline. That's that's for you know that's for the riffraff out there. Did you ever see the ja- the jazz singer remake from the seventies no. with Neil Diamond, where no. Neil Diamond plays? Uh, so the jazz singer with Al Jolson mm-hmm. is yeah. first talking years old. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then I believe it was Neil Diamond who starred in the remake. I think you're right. Yeah, I did not see it, and it's definitely worth the watch if you're a Neil Diamond fan. Make that a to-do list thing sometime in the next couple weeks. Got to be the, honest, the, not going to do that. Come on, the there's jazz no shame singer. there though. There, there's no shame. Being there. a Neil Diamond yeah, fan, yeah, no, he's very solid. I think he's the character's good. name was Jack Rabinowitz, and he just wow, cha- he just changed it to Jack Robin. I think Jack <laughs> is his first name. Yeah. Okay, I mean, uh, so I've so I've <laughs> yeah. heard. No, I haven't watched no, that movie a hundred times. Neil Diamond was very solid. Mm-hmm. No, can, no crime there in liking him. Can I say, boy bands from the late '90s, like In Sync, Justin Timberlake, well, In Sync. You can. I don't change the station. It's a little upsetting. I that's, can't. That's not gonna lie. I, can't I don't change turn the, the station. station quick enough. Yeah, but you didn't. I think you were well, more I was tw- fully I was formed adult. Twenty-nine by then. I was yeah, going to say, a fully was, formed adult, you're still not quite there. Maybe I, like as fully formed. Yeah, as I you will were never be, be a fully formed. Adult. Well, I am fully <laughs> formed. I will never be. A true adult. Are there boy bands you drew the line at then, Phil? I O-Town. mean, obviously, InSync. Oh, O-Town, come on now. Backstreet, I'm no. sure you were loving. No O-Town for you? I, my problem with Backstreet Boys, among a few, is the fact that every song had the same, like, chintzy beat to it. If you, and, you know, if you, if you don't have time to do this, I understand. <laughs> but Backstreet Boys, every song was, like, 
It's like they took the same background yeah, pre-produced that, track and yeah. just layered like 10 songs over it. Was it. NSYNC different? <laughs> J- Justin Timberlake, come on, way more original than that Nick Carter guy. So now, are, are you a Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch type of guy? A little before or? my time. A little okay. before my time. Yeah, New Kids on the Block was exploding as I was- That like, was Donnie, right? to elementary school. Yeah. New, New Kids was Donnie and Marky Mark was Mark Wahlberg, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, it was no. Marky. No, I, I have no idea. <laughs> wasn't Donnie Don. Who's O Town? <laughs> That's an amazing question. Who's O Town? Uh, just it. like the fifth boy band. It, I never. Like, I have honestly until now the, never heard of yeah, them. Yeah, they're, like, they're lower than ninety-eight degrees. Yeah, they came in after the boy band bubble exploded. 